Hello and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. I'm Dr. Neil Buttery and this is the first postbag episode where I get to look at listeners and blog readers' comments, emails, messages on Twitter, etc. about episodes or blog posts past and, well, well, I suppose pretty much anything to do with British food and British food history. So questions, errata, food memories, particularly interested in those for future reference folks. And I suppose it's also an opportunity to update you on some things. So in this episode, listeners' letters, P-Wet, Yorkshire puddings, including the controversial, award-winning Chinese Yorkshire pudding, and an exciting new book announcement from me. Yes, I shall be banging on about two books from now on, sorry not sorry. There's lots to talk about, and I'm going to leave links to everything that I mention in the show notes for you, including links to past episodes, websites, clips, whatever crops up. No need to take notes. But the first item is, unfortunately, very sad. And that was the recent announcement of the death of Glyn Hughes, whom I interviewed for this season of the podcast back in July 2022 in his hometown or village, really, Winster in Derbyshire. And I mean, this is something I'm still processing, to be honest. There was a notice on his Twitter account to say that he'd taken his own life and had been ill for a while. Now, This is a huge loss to the food history community. I mean, he was just so enthusiastic. If you've listened to his episode, you'll know that. He really launched into all of his projects, seemingly for no other reason, that he was just interested and kind of obsessed. And I feel we had something in common there, (laughs) because that's essentially how I started up doing what I'm doing. He had just finished his book on fish and chips, something we had talked about when I interviewed him for the podcast. I cut it right down because I wanted him to come on again, you know, to talk about it. I mean, he wrote quite a few books, actually, and ran three websites. He had a philosophy website and a site where he wrote abridged versions of books that, you know, that we should have read, but haven't, like Ulysses and that kind of thing. And anybody listening in Manchester or maybe lived in Manchester, also turns out he sculpted the wonderful sculpture of Alan Turin that sits in Sackville Park in Manchester City Centre. And I don't know what's going to happen to the Foods of England Project website, which is the reason that I uh, discovered him and got to know him. Um, But I will try and find out. But I really can't emphasise enough just what a significant contribution he made to the study of history and the traditions of English food. And he was also just very generous with his own knowledge and his own IP. All he wanted, it seems, was folk just to be as enthusiastic as he was. But all of this is secondary, of course, to the loss that his family and friends are feeling and, and dealing with right now. And my thoughts are with them. And if you are having difficulties with just getting through with life and your own mental health and you feel that you're not dealing with things, please speak to friends, family, your GP, or often better than any of these options, strangers. There's the Samaritans on 116123 or go to samaritans.org. There's always someone there to listen. Mind, the mental health charity, do some excellent work too. Visit mind.uk to see the variety of things they offer. And of course, you can go to those websites and donate some money if you would like to. Well, I thought I'd put in the uncut part of our chat in his local pub about fish and chips whilst we were eating fish and chips. The book is still available to buy as far as I can see. So let's just have a listen 
to a little bit anyway about the history of fish and chips from Glyn. Have you got anything else? Well, it's up? funny you should mention that because mm-hmm. I'm working day and night. I'm up at three o'clock in the morning now and can't sleep at all. Working on the um, working on the very surprising history of fish and chips. Okay, I thought. Um, Fish and chips is interesting, isn't it? Because there is nothing more British than fish and chips, is there? There is not. There is nothing more British than fish and chips. And in fact, if you put the phrase, there is nothing more British than fish and chips, into a well-known computer internet search engine, it finds, I think, more than a thousand pages with exactly that phrase, there is nothing more British than fish and chips, in it. Incidentally, if you put in, there is nothing more English than fish and chips, it finds three. I mean, as I'm sure you know, uh, the fish is a Spanish-Jewish recipe that was developed during the uh, Muslim period in oh. Spain and Iberia. And I'm now oh, yes, part of the medieval uh, empire. Uh, yeah, the, the, the empire of Al-Andalus. The empire of Al-Andalus, because the Jews uh, prospered uh, very much, because in the Quran it says uh, you must look after um, your Jewish friends. So right. apart from having to pay slightly higher tax than Muslims, it's considered to be one of the great periods of Jewish learning, 700-odd years uh, during which, of course, cooking was still forbidden on Fridays and there was lots of fish about. So you need to make sure that you can cook your fish before Shabbat and then eat it on Shabbat. Now, in the hot climate of Iberia, fish goes off very quickly. So the answer is to quickly fry it. The trouble with that is if you leave fried fish out, it dries out and goes tough and unpleasant. So if you batter it first and then fry it, you can keep it fresh by preserving and killing off the bugs on the outside, but it stays moist on the inside. So there you've got uh, Jewish fried fish. And then, of course, uh, things fell apart when the Christians conquered Spain and decided literally days after the conquest of Granada, literally days after the conquest of Granada, decided to throw the Jews out. And many of them came to, uh, most of them went to what's nowadays Turkey and Iraq, uh, but some of them came to the Netherlands and some of them came to Britain. And long story, which I will cut short. Um, yes, don't they think brought, it's too much. They brought no. You're going to have to buy the book. <laughs> you're going to have to buy the very surprising history of fish and chips. Um, and someone came to Britain, um, and the Sephardic Jewish um, synagogue, uh, Bemis Park Synagogue, uh, founded I think in 1701 in London, still going strong. Uh, and they brought uh, battered fish with them. It went through some changes down the line, but um, essentially, I, I, I've. Uh, uh, in order to understand fish and chips, you simply need to understand the Bar Kokhba revolt of 136 AD and the potato-related causes of the French Revolution and a Durham coal owner who had a particular predilection for women called Hannah and the British Camel Corps and the Grimsvolten volcano of 1785, George Washington and the fighting Belgian of Dundee and uh, the execution of Queen Elizabeth's doctor. All of these things. <laughs> Dr. D? Uh, no, it's a different, different one, actually. Doctor. A different doctor, actually. Um, yeah, different doctor. Let's have a look at some emails. Tammy wrote in because she had an important P-Wet update. Now, this is going all the way back to Season 1, Episode 6, where I went to Berry Market in Lancashire to find some black peas, a traditional Lenten food, as it used to be anyway, but also very popular on bonfire night in the uh, Lancashire area. But I was interested, not in black peas necessarily, but P-Wet. And I'm not a squeamish eater, as I'm sure you've all come to realise, but P-Wet makes me somewhat queasy. This happens when you're cooking dried peas, mushy peas, split peas. They're cooked in water 
And if you've ever cooked anything like lentils or anything like that, you find they kind of sink to the bottom and you get like a viscous fluid, thick kind of water gloop that rises to the top. Now, most people stir that back in, but in Lancashire, it was skimmed off as a little treat used as gravy or just a little, I don't know, aperitif. Anyway, Tammy says this. Hi, Neil. Loving the blog so far. Thank you very much. I don't know if anybody else has emailed about this, but in Wigan, which is in Lancashire, some chip shops sell smack balm pea wet, which is basically a large flat chip or hash brown, it seems, on a balm. That's a bread cake, bread bun, bread roll, depending where you come from in the country, with the water off the mushy peas on top. She says that she's yet yet to try it. <laughs> I mean, has anybody else heard of this or more importantly tried it? I mean, I'd love to know. Tammy emailed me shortly after her first email to say that she'd visited Berry Market after listening to the episode and tried some black peas. And it was the exact same store that I went to. So good work, Tammy. She also gave me a link to a YouTube video by a chap known as Joe who tries the dish. He didn't look too pleased at the look of it either. I mean, maybe I should pop over and try it. There's a link to the video in the show notes if you want to have a look to see Smack Balm Pea Wet. Mm. She also wonders, uh, would an episode about Scouse be of interest to listeners or readers? It could go on the blog, of course. Scouse is a stew. I guess it's in the same vein of um, Irish stew, uh, kind of potatoes and, and meat, usually a lamb, a bit of cabbage. It's a stew that the folk of Liverpool are known by. They're called Scousers. The dish is also called Lobscouse. So yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot to think about there, actually. Um, maybe an episode on Lancashire food could be something, or at least a series of posts on Lancashire food. Thanks, Tammy. Matthew contacted me on Twitter to say, Hi, Neil, I have a question for your podcast. I think it was in your season four episode with Glyn Hughes, where we were talking about tracing the cultural roots of certain recipes and the fact that it was a bit of a challenge. I think it was mentioned that recipes from France have a well-documented history in comparison to British records. I am wondering, is there a region of Great Britain that has better records or worse records than others? For example, do you get better records in Scotland or Wales? Do different record-keeping patterns show up with time? What a good question. Now, this is something that has come up a few times in previous episodes with Glyn. Uh, but also Peter Atkins, where we talked about cheese and the cheese industry. Loads of French recipes going back centuries and centuries, and very few of our own. At least, I think the first one was something like 18th century or something. So I had a little brief look into this. Now, for Scotland, I could not find anything older than 18th century, which is reckoned to be the earliest Scots cookery book handwritten. But this surely cannot be true. I've not done much better with Wales, few written recipes, a huge amount of overlap with English food. Lobscouse, as I previously mentioned, well, there's a lobscouse in Wales, essentially the same dish. There is one manuscript called Penneth Manuscript, 5.3d, catchy title. It's a book of handwritten recipes compiled in the 17th century by, I'm going to mangle this name, Muriel Williams. She was the highly capable wife of John Williams in Montgomeryshire. I'm quoting there from the National Library of Wales website, where you can view a digitised version of it. There's a link to it in the show notes, of course. Now, I haven't looked through the whole thing. I had a virtual flick through, and it looks, if I wasn't told it was Welsh, I would have thought it was English. You know, it's peas pottage, potted hair, collared meat, all the kind of 
things that you might expect to find in 17th, 18th century uh, cookbooks. It's just so difficult when there's so much cross-contamination between the homes of Britain. You know, this book will belong to a, a middle-class family. Uh, you know, the working classes making their own foods. Well, that didn't get written down because they've got stuff to do. They're not going to write it down. They're busy people and they're knackered. So yeah, I was a bit disappointed that I couldn't find anything. So any Welsh, Scottish, and of course, Irish food historians out there, I would love to hear from you. Surely we can beat 17th stroke 18th centuries for these cuisines. Surely we must. Katya Anderson, also via Twitter, said this. As I recall, you've done a podcast on the subject of gingerbread. Yes, I have, with Sam Bilton, season two, episode one. And wondered if the history of the use of spices in British cooking, as well as baking, say cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, etc., would make for an interesting podcast, possibly the Dark Side podcast. Well, you know, I mean, this the idea of doing a, a dark side of, of food was an idea that I bounced around with Bina Katani, who I put together the first season with. Very soon after that, and totally by coincidence, I was commissioned to write A Dark History of Sugar. And we kind of put it to one side. But I mean, there's, there's two episodes of the podcast about the dark history of sugar. And there's a dark history of chocolate with Emma Kay. But that's not really answering your question because they're not spices. But yes, spices and the spice road. You know, there's a huge variety of things to explore there. Every spice seems to have its own unique story. And I love the tales that were told by merchants and traders to make the spices seem more romantic and exciting and therefore more expensive. For example, there was a story that the cinnamon sticks that they sold on were stolen from a giant bird's nest at great risk to whoever it was sourcing them, and that kind of upped the price. And when I was talking to Sam Bill about saffron, and I found out that saffron actually travelled the other way up the spice road towards Asia <laughs> and away from Europe, you know, I was really surprised by that. I just you kind of think of all these spices trickling down into Europe, and that's it. So yeah, I'm going to revisit this. Not sure how or in what form. Thank you very much for your email. Rhiannon emailed about the episode from last time, Yorkshire Pudding, and she said, Just listening to your Yorkshire Pudding episode reminded me that my mum and my granddad would have very different Yorkshire Pudding techniques. Mum would go for the smaller round tin method with an emphasis on crunch, whereas my grandfather, who was a chef in the RAF catering corps during World War II, would utilise the large square tin method. This gave a much softer but more delicious pudding which could be cut into strips. You still got the crispy bits at the edges though, so a far more superior method in my opinion. I mean, I think we need to close the door on this discussion. It's big Yorkshire puddings are the best Yorkshire puddings. Now, Elaine and I talked about this and came to the same conclusion as you, Tammy. It's all about the big puddings. In fact, I've been looking a little bit more at this, and I think American listeners might be more familiar with this one, popovers. They do appear in some old British cookery book manuscripts, but they are eaten still today in the USA, and they're Yorkshire puddings made in small muffin tins. Perhaps not as high-rising as the chefs in, in Britain make these days, but they're popovers. They're not Yorkshire puddings. So I'm going to say this, and I shall not be argued with. Batter cooked in muffin tins... That's popovers. For it to be considered a proper Yorkshire pudding, it's got to be made in something bigger. I'm drawing a line under that now. <laughs> now, Tammy also mentioned something else at the bottom of her email, which was also interesting. 
She said, I want to ask if you've done an episode on Cowell. It's spelled C-A-W-L. It's a traditional Welsh stew, which she says is both simple and delicious. It varies between regions and families. Some people use beef brisket, but I do it, she says, with boiled gammon or a bacon joint. Doing it with gammon gives it a delicious salty flavour. It's traditionally served with bread and a big chunk of cheddar cheese or whatever hard cheese is hanging about, such as carefully. Well, I'm a big Cowell fan and I've made it several times. I made it first for the Jane Grigson blog, um, but I've, yeah, it's kind of part of my repertoire now, something I hadn't heard of until I started cooking those recipes in English Food by Jane Grigson. Uh, I go for beef and gammon at the same time. We don't really mix our meats very often in the UK, do we? But I think it's a case where you can get away with it. It's been on my menu at the restaurant as well. So she adds, maybe a Welsh foods episode where we could look at cowl, lava bread, Welsh rarebit, uh, other things, barabrith, tis and lap, Welsh cakes. Now, I love all those things mentioned, especially lava bread. When I first had it, I wasn't sure, but I soon got hooked. It's a kind of um, seaweed called lava, which is boiled essentially for hours and hours and hours till it becomes really dark green and sort of viscous. It's got a very strong seaside flavour to it. And it's quite a shock when you first try some, but I think it's great. So yeah, maybe broaden it out to maybe a southern Wales food. You know, there's a big regionality in, in Wales, just as there is in England or any other country. Uh, so maybe we should focus on South Wales at some point. Or maybe an episode on seaweeds in British cookery or blog posts. There's some fantastic griddle cakes as well. You know, aside from Welsh cakes to be found in Wales. Yeah, they really do some good pancakes. Much better than English ones. So I'll have a think about that one. I certainly need to up my Wales content in general, I think, both on the blog and the podcast. Because all those foods I've just listed that I love, they're not on the British Food History website, so I need to sort that out. By the way, there is an episode about savouries, season two, episode three, where I talk about Welsh rarebit, and I've got a recipe for it on the blog. The links to both of those are in the show notes. Now, I'm going to mangle this person's name because I don't know what country they are from. I'm going to go for Giel Medina Phrase. I really apologise. <laughs> oh dear. What about some food insights of the Hebrides? Now that one came as a curveball, but I think this is interesting. You know, more regional food, you know, that's not English and not food that's just generally British. So yeah, I mean, the message is here, I think, is I need to cast the net wider when it comes to these things. Because I'm Northern English, I suppose I do all the regional foods that I know <laughs> and I've made several times and I know the recipes are going to work. So yeah, okay. I shall endeavour to even out the representation of all the home nations in both blog and podcast. Okay, another Yorkshire pudding orientated email here from Andy. Uh, and it's about uh, more American Yorkshire pudding-like foods. He says, Hi Neil, I found you through the Bread and Thread guest spot. Great podcast that I appeared on, talking about puddings. And he heard me talk about puddings and it made some connections for him. Hence why he's emailed me. He does a recipe, and this is a great name, for a Dutch baby. <laughs> An American oven-made pancake, which came to America via Germany. I described this to an English friend, he says, and she called it a giant Yorkshire pudding. And your discussion with Elaine really reinforced that. The big difference I see, apart from size, is the batter is 
put directly into the pan rather than resting for a time, and a Dutch baby is likely to be sweet rather than savoury. This is a Yorkshire pudding, I would say, Andy. I mean, certainly in Yorkshire, it's eaten with sweet things, like jam, as a starter or as a dessert. I mean, think about uh, clafouti. Yeah, that's cherries in a sweetened batter and baked, which is essentially what, like a sweet toad in the hole? He gave me a link to a New York Times article, which I've included in the show notes if you want to know more about Dutch babies. Good work, Andy. Well done. Now, when I was on social media asking folk about any tips or musings about Yorkshire puddings, I got a few food dryers tips as well. Get me. Orlando Murrin, amongst other things, is the editor of BBC Good Food magazine. He says you don't have to heat the fat or the oven. You can put it all in cold. Hmm. He even made a video, which he sent me. However, and I'm not saying you're a big fat liar, Orlando. (laughs) It only shows him bringing the Yorkshire pudding out of the oven, not going in cold. In fact, he even said I had a lobby telling me that I faked it like Elvis Presley being on the moon. (laughs) No, I'm sure it does work. I mean, I've never tried it. Uh, I guess I'm setting my ways. But now it feels so expensive, you know, Possibly uses less fuel, so maybe we should have a go at that one. Author of the excellent book, European Peasant Cookery, Elizabeth Luard, she said, when available, pop a ladle full of snow in the batter. This is similar to um, tempura in Japan, isn't it? Because don't they put ice cubes in their batter to make it super crispy? I might be misremembering. But yes, this winter, please, somebody try it. Get back to me, thank you. Cookery book writer, Carolyn Hughes, author of Making the Most of Your Pressure Cooker, amongst many others. I'm a pressure cooker fan. I don't own her book, but it's obviously something I need to add to my list. She said, an old Yorkshire lady I'd known since I was born told me and showed me that when your batter is rested and just before pouring into the smoking hot fat, you give it a quick swoosh under the fast running cold tap to aerate it even more. And I tell you what, she says, her Yorkshires were light and crisp around the edges and wonderfully light but soft and slightly gooey in the middle. Big tin, of course, she says. Delicious, she also says. See, big tins. Big tin, folks. Author Nicola Fletcher, a meat cookery expert, has written several books, one of which I really like called The Scottish Oats Bible. She says, I would hope your discussion would include the fact that proper Yorkshire pudding is made in a large dish and not those round muffin style tins. There's meant to be a flatter, less crisp part in the middle and that's the whole point. Using beef dripping and getting the pan scalding hot seems to be the main things. She also says that her Yorkshire mother-in-law used to swear by not using her Kenwood chef, which she loved for the batter, but sitting down with the bowl on her knee steadily but slowly whisking the batter with a wooden spoon, which she still has, apparently, (laughs) until the batter produces and holds little bubbles. So I guess that's the the message the batter is giving out to say, I'm going to be nice and crisp and fluffy. Thank you very much, Nicola. Lyndon G also messaged me on social media. He's kind of like a, a food futurist, I suppose, looking at food trends now and predicting how they might be in the future. He mentions the Yorkshire puddings made in little muffin tins, which we now all call popovers, right? Because they're not Yorkshire puddings. <laughs> but he said this. The little ones are a result of restaurants using them for portion control. Manufacturers then 
adopted those and they became a product. There was a shortage of them a year or two ago from Aunt Bessie and chains like Toby Carvery and they ran out. And presumably the chefs at the Toby Carvery didn't have the knowledge or equipment to make them. Well, that just says it all, doesn't it? I mean, if you don't know how to make Yorkshire puddings, there's no longer any excuses. Check out Elaine Lem's book. As mentioned on the last episode and on a YouTube video, I'll put links in the show notes. But now let's turn our attention to the email that actually inspired all of this Yorkshire pudding chat. I read part of Ian Harker's email last episode, but I didn't read all of it because I missed this bit out and I've saved it for this episode. Now he said in the email, I read in Jane Grigson, that's Jane Grigson's English food, about the Yorkshire pudding competition in Leeds and the elusive Thai look sauce tracked down a newspaper article about it from 1970, and he's attached it. Now, this was a notorious competition because the person who won it was a Chinese chef living in Leeds. The article he hunted down and sent to me was from 21st of April, 1970, from the Daily Mirror. The headline goes, Tin Sung Chan, the new Yorkshire pudding champ. I've got some bits here to read out. They printed them off old school fashion. It says, it was big, it was fluffy. All the experts agreed it was the most mouth-watering Yorkshire pudding they had ever tasted. And there, wearing an inscrutable smile of triumph, was the creator of this masterpiece of traditional English cooking, Tin Sung Chan, the Chinese chef. He emerged from the kitchen of the Chopsticks restaurant in Leeds yesterday to give the local pride a real battering by winning the Great Yorkshire Pudding Contest. Competing against him were three chefs from posh hotels, a housewife and a girl student, all reckoned to be masters at the mysterious art of making Yorkshire puddings. So yeah, so six of them all together, just 20 minutes later, with all of the other Yorkshire puddings still only half done, Tin Sung flung open his oven door and there it was in all of its golden glory, the perfect Yorkshire pudding. Tin Sung smiled, but he said nothing. He can't even speak English. Not even enough to say Yorkshire pudding. Tin Sung's boss at the restaurant, called Danny Chung, said, He is, uh, well, do you know what? I'm not going to read that bit out because it's kind of racist. <laughs> Move on. Something that the local cooks had probably never even heard of was his special ingredient, a dash of Thai look sauce. And he kind of leaves it there. Now, I found some more articles about this. This time in The Guardian. Here they are. Shuffle my papers. It says this, right? I'm going to say a few more things about this. Headline, Tin Sung Chan wins Yorkshire Podin contest with Thai look. This is by someone called Michael Parkin. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so he makes a magnificent Yorkshire pudding. But the question is, and this is why it was controversial, I suppose. It was not Yorkshire pudding. He had flavoured it with Thai look, a Chinese spice. And he had stuffed it with eggs until it stood nearly five inches high, an arrogant souffle of a podin inflated far beyond its culinary station. Harsh words. It goes on to say, The Chinese Yorkshire pudding of Mr. Tin Sung Chan broke most of the traditional rules, using his own bran of inscrutable culinary logic. He beat his four eggs, milk and tiluk sauce, let them stand, and then added the flour at the last minute. And it says at the end here, 
as any Yorkshire woman could tell him all ingredients should be beaten together mercilessly and allowed to stand for at least an hour and should then be beaten savagely again with the addition of a teaspoon of water. One has to be brutal to the batter in order to get a really great Yorkshire pudding. Mr Ting Sung Chan has his triumph and a framed certificate to prove it. Yorkshire would prefer to honour him for his sweet and sour pork, which is said to be his other speciality. Ouch. Well, yeah, so people were up in arms. This was not a Yorkshire pudding. I mean, it, I mean it's a great big Yorkshire pudding. It's very impressive. And he's made it in a round, um, it looks like... Uh, uh, a sandwich tin or something like that. But there's a follow-up article. End of Threat to Yorkshire, again by Michael Parkin, and it appears a week after that original article. It says this. A chastened Mr Tin Sung Chan, the Chinese chef who won the Great Yorkshire Pudding Contest a week ago, announced through an interpreter yesterday that he would never again enter such a pudding contest, and he had not intended to win last week anyway. Since Mr Tin Sung Chan astonished the world, and apparently himself, by his triumph, newspapers in Yorkshire have been deluged with letters from readers proclaiming the virtues of traditional Yorkshire pudding recipes, and particularly scorning his use of the ingredient Thai Luck, a Chinese spice. Mr Danny Chung, the proprietor of the Chopsticks restaurant in Leeds, and now the employer of Mr Tin, now says that he was mistaken when he told the press that Thai luck was in the pudding that the judges tasted. This pepper-like substance went only into a bigger pudding that Mr Tin cooked at the same time. Mr Tin entered the contest only because it was for charity, and not for the challenge to his culinary abilities, but people have been coming from miles away to taste the Chinese Yorkshire pudding at his restaurant. Meanwhile, at York, which really should be in the heart of the Yorkshire pudding belt, Mr John Brown, the city's director of tourism, has launched a campaign for Yorkshire pudding to be served properly in local hotels and restaurants, adorning the plate by itself as a first course. Poor old Mr Tin Sung Chan. Jane Grigson found out later that Thai luck was a bit of a joke. A secret ingredient joke, she says. An amiable joke at the expense of Yorkshire patriotism. Apparently it just means mainland and is totally made up. Is this all we have to say about Yorkshire puddings now, though, people? Let me know if you've got anything to add. Keep the emails and DMs coming in. I've really enjoyed reading them. Um, sorry I couldn't read out all of them. But it's nice to hear from real people that actually listen to the podcast, because all I see, really, most of the time, is just data. So thank you very much for contacting. If you've got anything to say about any of the episodes, or anything that I've said today... Contact me, email neil at britishfoodhistory.com. So yeah, bring on postbag episode two. Okay, I have an announcement. Drum roll, please. Now, as I mentioned, at the start of the episode, I have a new book coming out. It's not for a while, probably Easter 2023. Like my last book, it's published by Pensod History. And it's about the amazing rise and fall story of Elizabeth Raffold, somebody who was a household name throughout England, in fact, throughout Britain, and she was very well known in North America in the 18th and 19th centuries because of her wonderful book, The Experienced English Housekeeper. Yet few people, even people who study food history, haven't heard of her. 
And I first discovered her like I discovered many excellent food writers from the past, via Jane Grigson, of course. Now, let me read you a passage from her book, English Food, which, well, it got me hooked. Let me find it. Here we are. Elizabeth Raffles, Orange Custards. She says, the majority of the best cookery books in this country have been written by women or by foreigners. I agree. And of this energetic tribe, the most energetic of all was Elizabeth Raffold. Consider her career. She started work at 15 in 1748, ending up as housekeeper at Arley Hall in Cheshire. At 30, she married. 18 years later, she was dead. During those 18 years, she organised. A. A cook food shop selling pies, brawn, pickles, etc. B. An enlarged cook food shop with confectionery department. C. The first domestic servants employment agency. D. Two important Manchester inns, or rather posting houses. E. The first street and trade directory of Manchester, then a town of something of around 20,000 inhabitants. F. A couple of newspapers, as an eminence rose. G. An unreliable husband. H. 15 or 16, some conflict of evidence, daughters. I. Her cookery book, The Experienced English Housekeeper, published in 1769. Many of her recipes can be adapted to modern kitchen machinery, which she would have thoroughly approved of. She could always see the advantages of the latest thing and added her own contribution to progress. I mean, that's quite a CV, isn't it? My goodness. Uh, so when I started looking at her and her book and her influences, I found out so many amazing things about her life. I mean, she was eventually ousted, like so many others, by Mrs. Beaton, who mined everyone else's books for material. Notice, actually, on her book, she's the editor, not the writer. But when people think of traditional British food, I say I would say most people think of Mrs. Beaton. Well, I argue that we should be thinking about Elizabeth Raffold. But there's more to her than just a cookery book, as you've heard from Jane Grigson there. Indeed, in writing the book, I had to delve not only into the history of food in the 18th century, but I had to look at trade and empire, domestic service, the agricultural revolution, women's rights, publishing and copyright law, gentlemen's clubs and societies, the horse races, the defeminization of midwifery, and the paranormal, to name but a few. So, I'm going to have a few interviews, stroke episodes of the podcast that look at things, well, things that I didn't get a chance to maybe elaborate on in the book, really just to help the scene even more, uh, and interview some experts in various aspects of 18th century food, commerce, dining, domestic service, you know, and talk about them in a way that I couldn't in the book. Well, hopefully anyway. I do have one in the bag, actually, in fact, and it's quite exciting. More about that, though, when we get to season five. Hey, don't forget my first book, though, A Dark History of Sugar, which is available from anywhere you can buy books. And, hey, we're getting close to Christmas, so if you'd like a signed copy of it as a Christmas present or something like that to someone, let me know. Information in the show notes about that. Plug over. All right, my dears, it's time to go. A big thank you to everyone who spared their time out of their very busy schedules to come on the podcast this season. Felicity Cloak, Emma Kay, Glyn Hughes, Sam Bilton, Ben Mervis, Sir Joel Sukadwala, and Elaine Lem.
But an even bigger thank you to you lot for listening and for helping to get the podcast out there. Getting more and more popular with every episode and it's climbing higher in the charts and being discovered all over the world. Please continue to tell your friends and family about it. Keep reviewing, keep rating. And of course, keep listening and reading the blog posts. And don't forget, I want to know your thoughts, feelings, etc. about things in the podcast for future postbag editions. Contact details again. Email neil at britishfoodhistory.com. Twitter at Neil Buttery. Instagram doctor, that is dr underscore neil underscore buttery. I'm not going to say when I'll be back, but I'm certainly going to take, well, at least a month off from any kind of podcast editing and writing. But I should be sorting out interviews as and when within that period, hopefully anyway. I haven't talked about subscribers yet, have I? Anybody who's a subscriber is going to hear from me soon via email because I'm going to start doing some newsletters. I'm going to aim for one a month, but we'll just see how it goes. But really, to help point you in the right direction of where you can find Easter eggs, both old and new, maybe something that's come up in the news or there's a future event, you'll get first dibs on that as well as any news about any bits and bobs I've got planned. There's going to be an extra recipe in there that nobody else gets. But if you're not a subscriber, still keep an eye out on the blog and BritishFoodHistory.com for anything else that's going to pop up. There's definitely going to be a few blog posts happening between now and when I come back for season five. And you can find all of those BritishFoodHistory.com or NeilCooksGrigson.com. Going to try and get a couple of entries done on that blog. It's been a while since I posted there. Um, but yeah, I'm going to pull my finger out and get a couple of posts, hopefully, done before Christmas. Subscribers, you will be told about this as they happen. If you want to support the running of the podcast and the blog and become a subscriber, you well, you probably know what to do already, but just in case you don't, just go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website, BritishFoodHistory.com. The subscription is just £3 a month. Everything I receive goes back into making more content. If you don't want to be a subscriber, you could treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or pint or something like that. But as I always say, look, there's no pressure because just by listening and spreading the good word is supporting the podcast on the box. Right, I'm definitely going now. All your support, as I say, very much appreciated. Take care of yourselves and I shall see you soon. Bye-bye.